How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. As we continue our study in First Thessalonians, we need to be spiritually prepared, which means we need to be in right relationship with the Lord. We need to be walking by the Spirit. But when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to the flesh or the sin nature. So we need to confess sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful that we can come together today to study your word, to let the light of your word shine upon our minds that we might understand light. As the psalmist prayed, in your light we see light. We come to understand truth as we come to understand your word. And Father, it is through your word that we are sanctified, that we are brought uh, more in conformity to the image of Christ. Father, we pray that as we study today, you'll help us to understand the things that that we learn and how they apply to our own thinking and our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just a reminder at the beginning that this is not a continuous study. Therefore, there's a little more repetition than than we've had maybe in some series. For example, the last time that we uh, had a lesson in First Thessalonians was in June of this year, June of 2018, and the one previous to that was in December, I believe, or January, somewhere in there, of 2015. So that creates a gap, and for the those who are listening, because we're using these to fill in on Bible Bible classes when I'm either sick or out of the country or otherwise unable to have somebody uh, take my place in the pulpit, that uh, for those listening, we need a little more uh, review and reminder of what we've done and where we're going in First uh, Thessalonians. And as we come to chapter 2, which we've talked about in the last two lessons, we talked about this in lesson uh, 26 in uh, 2015, and again, developing it in 2018, just about four or five months ago. So now we're continuing here, and this is a situation where the Apostle Paul has taken the gospel already to Thessalonica, and he was there for a short period of time, and then he was forced to leave. There was a lot of unrest. There was uh, many things that happened, and since then he's come under a lot of verbal assault. And we, too, many times come under the verbal assault of people. It may take the form of gossip or maligning. There may be people who are out to uh, get us and undercut us, maybe at work. Maybe there are family members that are uh, irritated with us or angry with us. Some of them are reacting to the fact that we are standing for the gospel, and they know it, and they're under conviction, and so they react in anger. And there are uh, many other reasons. Maybe it's a close friend 
Maybe it is someone we thought was a close friend, but they betrayed us. It could be a spouse. There are many, many times when we go through uh, the breakup of relationships from professional to personal that result from a tremendous amount of sins of the tongue, gossip, slander, maligning. Uh, All of this flows from bitterness and envy in the soul. And sometimes it's the reaction toward God. And it has a strong spiritual base, which was a situation uh, with the Apostle Paul. And so one of the things that we see it, that Paul Paul doing in this chapter is he is defending uh, especially three things in these first 16 verses, his personal integrity when he was in Thessalonica. And he appeals constantly, and we'll see, to their personal experience with him. He constantly says, as you know, as you remember, when we were among you in reminding them of what he was like when he was with them, reminding them of his personal integrity, reminding them of his motivation in ministry, and reminding them of his personal conduct among them. But when it comes to handling this kind of antagonism, this kind of hostility, Uh, Paul was no stranger, for before he was saved, when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, and he was a a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he was hostile to Christianity, we are told in Acts 9-1, then Saul, still breathing threats, that would be sins of the tongue, and murder, that would be an overt sin against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. So he too was guilty of this kind of hostility and antagonism to those who were believers. He had been guilty of this, of slander and maligning all manner of uh, sins of the tongue, as well as overt sins, the arrest, incarceration, Uh, torture probably, and murder, uh, execution of some of these disciples, according to Acts 9.1. So he had persecuted those in this new sect uh, called the Nazarenes, those who followed Jesus of Nazareth, believed he was the Messiah who had died on the cross for their sins. And he sensed something, I think, uh, along with the conviction of God the Holy Spirit that was ongoing through this time, because when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, Jesus not only said, how long will you keep persecuting me, indicating the body of Christ or the church, but he said, how long are you going to kick against the goads? In other words, you are constantly being goaded or are convicted by God the Holy Spirit. How long are you going to resist that? And so when people are under conviction and they're fighting it, they're in reaction. They're going to be angry. They're going to be uh, express that in all kinds of hostility and resentment. And this is the result of man's slavery to religion, whether it's a religion of atheism, which even the uh, United States Supreme Court in a, in a a uh, decision back in the 1972 determined that secular humanism was a religion. Atheism is a religious belief. If theism is a religious belief, that is the belief in God, then the opposite must also be a religion. That's just basic logic. So all of your atheist friends have a religion. 
even though they want to claim to be neutral. So it's always one religion or another, but man always tries to substitute something for God. And when they are challenged by that, then they react in anger. We must always remember that religion is not Christianity, not biblical Christianity. Religion has the idea that we can earn God's favor or earn the favor of the universe or somehow we will please the forces that be so that we have a good life afterwards and we're absorbed into the universe or we go into whatever heaven they think there is. But Christianity teaches that man cannot have a relationship with God because of sin and unless that is solved and only Christianity has it solved by God and it is a free solution, a gift, then our salvation is by grace apart from works and it is through faith in the gospel. And so Saul was under uh, under conviction and when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on his way to Damascus to persecute, to jail, to execute Christians there, that is when he trusted in the Lord. So he's gone from one side to the other. And remember the opposition to him in, in Thessalonica, which is described in Acts chapter 17, was motivated by the religious Jews who rejected what he taught in the synagogues. Uh, Acts tells us that he came into the synagogue and for three Sabbaths he reasoned in the synagogue. He opened the scripture and he laid it out uh, before them. And so they understood uh, the gospel. So now in this section in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul clearly understands the other side. But he's not compromising. He's not going to back off. He's not going to uh, lessen the focus of his message. He's not going to make it more pleasing and more acceptable to them to reduce the friction and the hostility. But he is going to handle it in love, not just love toward his enemies, which, of course, Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, but he is showing love for the believers in Thessalonica, his love is focused not only on those who are the persecutors, but those who are being persecuted. And therefore, he must show them how to properly stand in the midst of opposition, how to handle those who are treating them in a hateful manner, and how to, uh, how to present who they are to the opposition. And so he is going to defend who he is on the basis of his uh, character, demonstrating his integrity, his motivation, and his conduct, which means that his witness, sometimes we call it the witness with the lips, that is what he taught, is completely backed up by the witness with with his life. Now, that doesn't mean Paul was perfect. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's sinless. Saul uh, got out of fellowship. Saul sinned just like everybody else does. But the overview of his life is that he was a man of, of great integrity, and this is what he describes. Now, back in the first chapter, he gives some foreshadowing to what he is going to say in chapter 2. Now, remember, chapter 1 was only 10 verses, so that was very short. 
part of the introduction. And he says in verse 5, he says, for our gospel, and that's his focal point. And when he talks later about things that he taught or exhorted or challenged, it always goes back to this broad understanding of his presentation of the gospel, what Luke describes as opening up the word and presenting a case. So uh, sometimes we want to think of exhortation as something that is distinct from teaching the word and it is always word based it is always focused on the explanation and application of what the scripture says so this is his message in a broad sense not only the message that christ died for your sins but the implications of that in terms of the spiritual life for our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power And that's what backs him up, and he states here, is it's not only his message, but also uh, his life and his personal ministry to them on a one-to-one basis, Uh, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And this is, you know, the beginning of, of... something that he does throughout this epistle is he keeps going back to you know me personally you saw me you witnessed me you talked to me you know from your experience the kind of person i am and so that's where he starts this in first thess 1 5 then when we get down to verse 9 he says for they themselves uh, declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you Okay, and so here he is talking about those who have uh, told the story of what happened in Thessalonica and have related how the Thessalonican pagans were converted to Christianity, how the Thessalonican Jews were converted, converted to Christianity, and the difference it made in their life. And so he says, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So what's interesting here is this word that he uses, which is not used very much in Scripture. It's used in a more literal sense of going or entering into a city or going somewhere physically in the Gospels. But in the epistles, it's used very rarely. It's used twice here. It's going to be used here in verse 9. And then he picks it up again in verse 1 of chapter 2, which through the use of this same word connects uh, what he's talking about in chapter 2 with what he said in this introduction. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry, it's hase hadas. Hadas is the word for a path or a road or a way, and ace has the idea of entry or going into somewhere, taking a path toward some place. And so it came to mean to visit someone or to uh, have an entry into their uh, life or their, in this case, would be their synagogue or their community. And he says, so he reminds them of how it was that he came to them and what the results of his coming were, how they turned to God 
from idols to serve the living and true God. And for the Jews, this would be a significant phrase because turning to God from idols was something that was talked about in the Torah and among in the prophets that it, the Israelites were constantly being seduced by idols and they needed to turn, shuv, in the Hebrew, this uh, synonym for repent that we see in the New Testament, which means to change your mind, and so they were turning from God to uh, from God from idols to God to serve the living and true God. And then in two one, he talks about uh, he begins to get into this topic of what that coming was was like. And before we get into this, I want to say a couple of things about those who were attacking Paul. Uh, the scriptures uh, indicate that the congregation of the Thessalonians was uh, uh, was one that was growing. They were without reproach. Pa- uh, Paul does not condemn them uh, for anything. And he describes them in very, very positive terms. He calls them our hope and joy and crown of blessing in 2, 19 to 20. And he talks about their positive uh, growth and that they are increasing even more in their growth numerically and growth spiritually in chapter uh, chapter 4. He also describes them as brothers All of this indicates he's writing to them as believers. So he's talking to them as believers, not as unbelievers. And he identifies these opponents uh, down in chapter 2, verse 14, as fellow citizens. So they are those who are living in Thessalonica. And so the opposition that they're facing is uh, social harassment social opposition. It is not to the extreme of overt hostility and persecution and arrest and martyrdom, but it is, uh, they are facing a lot of rejection. They are facing sarcasm and uh, hostile negative remarks. They may be facing uh, the loss of business, the loss of jobs, and the loss of of, uh, the ability to participate in certain uh, civic activities as well as uh, just associate with their friends. We've run into the same kind of thing that Peter is dealing with with his audience in 1 Peter who are Jews who have become Christians. And so we see this a lot in our society. It's interesting as I was going back uh, to review what I've studied out and taught in the previous lessons, I noticed that in lesson 26, which is two lessons back, I wrote this in my notes. As long as we live in the devil's world, we will face opposition. We have lived in a historical bubble in the United States that is about to burst. It is bursting. We have had very positive treatment for Christians, and the majority of people up until the post-World War II generation were biblically uh, literate. They may not have been saved, but it was a biblically literate culture, and it was founded on the principles of Christianity. But in the post-World War II 
era, especially with the rise of baby boomers, there was more and more of a visible hostility to Christianity that really came to the forefront or began to be more and more open and hostile with the uh, in the 1990s, and it got worse in the early part of the 2000s, and in the last few years, even worse. And I wrote this in 2015, and I said... Um, Religious opposition will develop into overt religious persecution, specifically against Bible-believing Christians. If you aren't doing this by now, I encourage you to begin training yourself spiritually to face the coming persecution. Now, it may not be overt where they're rounding up Christians or throwing them in jail or things like that, but it may be little things. There may be uh, policies that are set forth in by the Human Resources Department of the place that you work that are forcing you to uh, accept and approve homosexual lifestyle. And you have to decide, is it worth sacrificing your integrity as a believer in order to keep your job? And this is going to be become more and more difficult. I think now, when I wrote this, it was during uh, President Obama's administration, which was increasingly hostile to Christians. And with the election of President Trump, I think that hostility is increased because uh, the extreme left is so hostile to him that anyone who voted for him also bears uh, all of their bile and all of their anger and all of their vicious uh, uh, reaction. And so this just builds to a further and further fragmentation of our of our nation. I said, I wrote, we are involved in a tremendous spiritual struggle and the forces of darkness are gathering their strength against us. Our response, like Paul's, is not to react in anger or to feel threatened or to be hostile. Remember, our mission is not political. Our primary mission is spiritual. It's to present the gospel in grace, in gentleness, in kindness, but with bold courage. That's what we see with the Apostle Paul. So we look back briefly at Acts 17 where we're told that there were this, was this reaction to the gospel by the Jewish leaders, but the Jews who were not persuaded by the gospel, he'd already stated many of the Gentile proselytes were persuaded, many of the leading ladies in the congregation were uh, persuaded, but there were these among the leadership who reacted, they became envious. The word there is really more zealous than jealous. Now those ideas often overlap and it's the same word in the Greek but we see this that word is applied to Paul earlier that he was zealous for the faith of his father so it's a mix of anger and resentment and jealousy and hostility so they became zealous and took some of the evil men from the marketplace so they went out and found uh, ne'er-do-wells, they hired people. This is what's happening today is most of these demonstrations that you see are paid for. Uh, now's the time when they, we've had these uh, hearings for Judge Kavanaugh. We don't know how that's going to eventually end up. But there were many protesters who were in the, um, uh, in, in the galley in 
Congress, and it turns out that they were followed and they got paid off afterwards. They would go in and they would create a uh, some turmoil and yell and scream and shout, and then they would come out, and then there was a paymaster outside who was uh, videotaped, and he's paying them. Where's he getting his money? But they're being paid off, and so uh, this is what's happening. It is just mob violence. We've seen the rise of Black Lives Matters and Antifa and many of these other anarchist groups, and they should never be supported by any American citizen. In fact, if you support that group, I think that you should lose your citizenship and be deported to whatever country your ancestors came from because you have violated the basic social contract of this nation. And the result of that is just going to be further uh, division and destruction of our national uh, fabric. So Paul here appeals to them in chapter 2, verse 1, to what they know. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. And we have many of this type of references to this past experience in these first two chapters. He says, as you know, in one five, in two one he says, you yourselves know. In two two he says, as you know. In two five he says, as you know. Then he appeals to God because in two five he's stating his internal motivation, which they can't witness, but God can witness. So he says, God is my witness in two five. In 2.6, he says, we did not seek glory from men or from you or from others. Again, this is something they can testify to. Uh, in 2.7, he says, we were gentle among you. This is something that they know. And then in 2.11, he again says, as you know. So this is something we don't find in most of Paul's writings. This is a very personal uh, epistle at this stage in chapter 2, verse 1, down through 3.13. He's given giving this personal apologia. He's not on the defensive, uh, but he is giving a defense that is a rational, logical explanation of his character in the face of these unjust, unreasonable charges against him. And then he talks about remembering. Twice he says, remembering in one three and in two nine for you remember so he appeals to their memory of his being with them and then there are similar expressions that reinforce this idea of going back to their previous uh, knowledge of paul he says in one eight we don't need to say anything about this why because you already know it you remember it and in two ten he says for you are witnesses and all of these indicate this first-hand knowledge. So he is appealing to that time that he was with them, that they witnessed his integrity, they witnessed, they could see what he motivated him, and they could uh, witness his conduct. Now, here's something that you're going to have trouble reading, but I wanted to put this whole section up here so that you could see the structure of what's going on here. This was something that uh, I didn't pick up on in the previous lessons, but as I was studying this, I noticed that there is a, a clear structure. You have in two one, it begins with the word for, and then he uh, states actually a negative, the, the for this is what they say about me, and then he refutes it with the but. 
So you have a for and a but. That's your first antithesis. The term antithesis means statements that are in opposition to one another. So he is stating something here that it is not A, but it is B. And so you have your first group in 2-1 and 2-2. That is really going to be talking, as we will see, that is a defense of his integrity and is an introduction to uh, what he says in the first 16 verses. He sets forth his personal, the integrity of his, of his personal uh, character. And then we have the second antithesis in 2-3, 2-4. It starts with the four and then is contrasted with a but in verse four. And so again, we see him stating something uh rejecting the claim against him. Apparently the claim had to do with that, that they were uh, teaching from error or from uncleanness or deceit. And he says, in contrast, no, the truth is we were approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests the heart. So that's the second grouping of antithesis. And then we get to the third in 2.5. This is a long one. It goes down through 2.7 or 2.8. 2.8 is sort of a conclusion to this section, but you have the 4 in verse 5 and a but in verse 7. You have another 4 or explanation coming up in 2.9, but it doesn't follow the 4 and then but uh, formula. So this sets it up. And then his conclusion that we have to understand where is all this going why is paul saying this and the conclusion to this is what he states in verse 12 and in verse 12 he says that the purpose for his ministry is that you would walk worthy of god who calls you into his own kingdom and glory so that is the concluding statement here he, it, it is so we would walk worthy today that we would live in a manner worthy of God's grace and the gospel. That's not legalism. That's just saying now you're part of the family. Live in a way that supports the family. And the idea of being called into his kingdom, the kingdom is future, that glory is future. Obviously, both are future, and that is our ultimate destiny. Now, what I've done on this slide is to take out verses 9 through 12 and to just look basically at the four-but structure here so that it's a little bit uh, larger font size so that you can see that a little bit better. But what I'm going to do is break these down into their grouping. So you have 2-1 and 2-2. He states in 2-1, For you yourselves know that our coming to you was not in vain. And then he says, in contrast, uh, after what we suffered in Philippi and how we were abused there because they were physically beaten and tortured and thrown in jail, and they had heard this the stories, he says, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now, the contrast here is between vain and and boldness. So we want to come back and talk about that in just a minute. The second contrast is the first part is the accusation against them that they taught, what they taught, their exhortation was from error 
or uncleanness or deceit, three things. And he answers that by saying, no, we have already been approved by God. It's a perfect tense verb. And it has to do with that God approved them before giving them the responsibility as apostles and, and the message of the gospel. So, so then he goes on to say, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So we're not doing it for our personal gain. We're doing it in order to um, uh, demonstrate the character of God. And then verses 5 through 7, uh, verses 5 and 6 state the negative again, which indicates the charges against him using flattery, which is typical of the rhetoricians and the sophists and the, and the uh, philosophers that would, uh, the itinerant philosophers that would go through Greece. And they were, uh, they, they were a lot like a lot of these health and wealth gospel preachers as well as other purveyors of psychobabble that you find on PBS and other stations where where they're just trying to, they're, they're making a big buck. They're making a lot of money, and it's all about their success and their name and their money, and it is not about the truth, the eternal truth of what they are saying. And so they had their flatterers, and it was empty promises, and it was uh, just feel-good words with no real content. Uh, so they're accused of that. They're accused of being just like all of these others. Uh, they're also accused of, well, they're just making a lot of money. And so uh, that, unfortunately, is true today of a lot of these health and wealth gospel purveyors, these televangelists, some of whom have been uh, brought uh, up on at least investigations because of the way they've spent their money. There's even one that I read about that had 24 karat gold commodes in their bathrooms, in their houses. Uh, just an a- absolute waste. Others have come up on charges related to their purchase of, you know, private jets to get them places. And I go back and forth on that because I know what it's like to travel a little bit, and that can become quite inconvenient. And some of these people do travel all over the world. Of course, I'm not in favor of most of what they're doing, but they travel all over the world, and they may be going three or four different places in one week. So I can see some justification for getting your own mode of transportation, but what that is, well, that's a different story. Um, Two seven. We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, uh, and so he talks about them positively. One more thing about that covetousness: to this idea that you have a dream that God tells you to go buy, you know, some uh, extremely expensive Gulf Stream or something like that to fly all over the place. That's just bogus, and so their methodology is just to fleece the sheep, which is so very, very, very sad. So what do we see here? Uh, What we see here is that Paul begins by emphasizing his character, his personal integrity, and that is in this first section in 1.1 and 1.2. And so as he sets up this contrast, he's contrasting... um, the first part, that is you, the claim that they, they, they came in vain. Now, what exactly does that mean? And there's debate over this. The Greek word is kenos, 
which can mean empty or foolish or worthless. It can have the idea of not having any real impact. And I took it that way. That's the majority view. There's actually three ways in which you can take the meaning of of kinos. The first is that it just means that he came empty-handed, that he really didn't bring anything. And those who take this view say, no, he did bring something. He brought the gospel. I think there's a weakness with that view is that it doesn't agree with Paul's metaphorical use of the word in every other place that he uses this term in his epistles. So it's completely out of character with how Paul uses that term. I think there's better options. The second one is to emphasize the results of his visit. It wasn't in vain. There were so many who turned from idols to the living God. And that's how I took it when I taught this the last time. But there is a third view that is set forth by a number of scholars, and this is the view that emphasizes his integrity. And it makes better sense contextually, because if there's a charge that his ministry is in vain or or based on something that's empty, then the contrast, the antithesis that he states in uh, verse 2 would have to be related categorically to how you understand coming in vain. And so his answer to that is, no, it wasn't in vain. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in the midst of opposition. And so what he's emphasizing there is his integrity. He didn't Uh, water down the message. He didn't minimize the message. He didn't seek to placate those in opposition and try to emphasize areas of agreement and de-emphasize areas of disagreement. He showed real personal integrity, and he stuck with his message even when he faced uh, negative consequences and harsh consequences. So that's the thrust of the first part. And application for this is that This should be true of every pastor, of every evangelist, of every minister of the gospel, is that they have personal integrity, which in this context correlates to that, what I taught when we went through lesson uh, 26, and that is the importance of having spiritual courage to state the truth but to state it in without animosity, without anger, without resentment, but to state the truth of the gospel uh, no matter what happens. One thing that has occurred, or a couple times this has occurred since that uh, situation, is I've known of pastors who have uh, been asked to leave their churches when those pastors were teaching the word. And they were doing an outstanding job. And what it is is the people in their congregations who resented that, who wanted to go back to a feel-good motivational uh, ministry, were the ones who were running them out. But Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the fact that if you let leaven uh, survive in the congregation, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. In other words, you let these people come into your congregation who are not committed to the sufficiency of scripture and to sound doctrine, and they want to shift the emphasis. If you let them win, then you let the leaven win. And that's not Paul's mentality. And so the pastor needs to be bold. He needs to be courageous. He needs to have that spiritual courage 
to stand up for the truth and not be forced to back down. And that's the same for us. Now, that doesn't mean it, it, that's what we do, but it also means that we have to do it the right way, not in a manner of antagonism. Often when somebody challenges us, we can get angry, we can get resentful, uh, we get mad at them. I know that certainly happened to me over the years. We have to learn to not let those emotions rise up, but to relax, have a grace orientation and a relaxed mental attitude, and help people understand the truth of the gospel and not to return evil for evil or bitterness for bitterness or anger for anger. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. And he demonstrated that in his in integrity by speaking the gospel in a courageous manner. In the second set of antitheses, Paul reminds them that they had endured tremendous rejection, hostility, and suffering as they proclaimed their message, which they would not have done if they had wrong motives. In other words, he's saying that he and Paul and Silas had had courage. They faced a lot of rejection, a lot of hostility. And in this, he's going to say that it didn't come from wrong motives, but the reason we were able to stand fast is it came from right motives. And so uh, he emphasizes uh, this aspect. Now, let me remind you where they are. This northern part of Greece, most of this map here is a picture of Greece. This northern part is Macedonia, and you have the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way that's a major trade route, major highway in the Roman Empire. And notice it goes over here to the Adriatic where uh, you have a port. So they would bring uh, goods and material across that trade route, and it runs through this Roman colony of uh, Philippi, also through Thessalonica, and then over here to Berea. And so this traces Paul's route on his second missionary journey. He went first to Philippi, where he's beaten, where he's tortured, where he's thrown in prison, and where the uh, angel... Uh, frees him but he doesn't leave the jail and the philippian jailer says what do i need to do to be saved and paul said believe on the lord jesus christ and you will be saved he left there and went to thessalonica he's there for at least three weeks probably not more than two months and then there's such opposition and hostility that is raised up against them that he has to leave and then he goes to Berea, and there's just the opposite reaction there. The people searched the scriptures to see what was so, and there were many who responded and believed uh, believed the gospel. So um, let me skip on to pass these slides to the second part. In 1 Thessalonians 2.3, Paul says, Our exhortation and this is this doesn't refer to preaching. Some people think exhortation is a motivational sermon. Exhortation can have motivation in it, but it's a challenge. It is, uh, and and in this context, if you look at what it talks about in terms of Paul's communication to the Thessalonians, it involves both the presentation of the gospel. That is an exhortation, a challenge to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, as well as the implications of the teaching of the word and how to live the Christian life. So exhortation is not talking about a different genre of 
preaching or of speaking. It is talking about the content, but the content is still biblical content. It's not telling uh, trite little sentimental stories all through your sermon so that you generate a lot of emotion in your congregation. Uh, that is unfortunately too common today. Our exhortation, that is our biblical challenge, did not come from three things, error first, uncleanness second, nor was it in deceit. That's, that is what they are charged with. And then in verse 4, it gives his answer. No, it's not coming from deceit. We, got, we were approved by God, first of all. And then because we were approved by God, we were entrusted with the gospel. And that is what we speak, not to please men, but God. Why? Because God tests our heart. We'll see those words there are all related to ultimate evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. We've seen that in the last lesson. So negatively, he says these three things. It's not from deception, nor from impure motive, nor made with deceit, but in contrast, as we've been examined by God and entrusted with the gospel. Now, when we look at the terminology that is used here, the first word that's used, uh, I'll just go to this slide because that has all three of them in it. Plane is the first word, and it has the sense, it can have two senses. It can have a moral error where they were intentionally trying to dupe people. Or it can have the sense of an intellectual error where they were giving false information. Now, that error of content is what is being emphasized here. Why do I say that? Because the moral deception is covered by the third word, dalas. And so he's saying that our exhortation, that is our explanation of the gospel and the Christian life, did not proceed from wrong content and wrong information. It was based on true facts and true events. Second, he says it didn't come from uncleanness. Uncleanness is often used in terms of sexual immorality, but it has a broad sense in a number of passages, and there it just means generally impure motives, self-centered motives, and... Um, uh, that which is contrary to that which is beneficial to the audience. So here he's explaining his motivation. It's not from uh, error of information or content. It's not because we had impure motives. And last, they weren't trying to intentionally uh, dupe the people or defraud them with a lie. They weren't conning them. And so this is his motivation. And then positively what he says is our motivation comes from what has happened positionally or in the past already God approved it. He called the apostles. So he's talking here about the apostolic message, and he includes within that because he will mention the uh, apostles down in verse 6. Uh, even though he has Silas and Timothy with him there, basically his his messengers, they're his assistants, so they get covered by that term uh, ap apostle because they're functioning under his direction as an apostle. But in verse 4, he says in his defense, he says, we've been approved by God. That is 
this verb on the right. See, the adjective is abdakimas. I put this in here. That's what we often find in passages such as James 1, 2 through 4, uh, that we're tested for approval to reveal the positive in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. And so what we have here are the cognate forms of that that uh, adjective. We have the verb dokimazo uh, twice. Uh, we have, have been approved. It's a perfect tense, meaning completed action in the past. So he's not uh, getting approval. He's not continuing to be approved. He said this happened. We were approved positionally in the past. And because of that approval, we're entrusted with the gospel. And then he says, so we speak not to please men. They aren't the ones who commissioned us. We are commissioned and under the authority of God. And he is the one who tests or evaluates our, our hearts. And that, in that sense, it talks about his soul. It's another term in this context. It talks about the center of the being, which would understand or which would include motivation as well as their, their thinking. So here he defends his motivation. So he starts off defending his integrity. Second, motivation. Our motivation in the Christian life, our motivation as pastors needs to be a pure motivation. We serve the Lord and we are to be found faithful, as Paul says in in uh, Second Corinthians four two, uh, First Corinthians four two, that what is required of stewards is that be, we be found faithful, faithful to God first, faithful to His Word uh, second, and so we are to be trustworthy and dependable because we have we too have been entrusted with the gospel. So we live our lives not as men pleasers but God pleasers. So this addresses our motivation as well. And then third, he is going to give a defense of his personal conduct. We lived among you. We shared our very lives with you so that you saw us, you witnessed who we were. There's no duplicity there uh, whatsoever. And so he says uh, here, he says in verses 5 through 7, Neither at any time did we use flattering words, a cloak of covetousness. Uh, that word for covetousness is also a word that means uh, just uh, for greed, just pure greed for, for our own financial gain. And then, of course, they couldn't see that, so he says, God, it's my witness. And now he says the uh, other part of it in verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men. We didn't seek personal recognition or praise or fame. We're not seeking the glory from men, either from you or for others. Uh, when we might have done so, when we might have made demands, and that word for demands is interesting. It's a word that means uh, something that is weighty or heavy. And so this has the idea that we could have thrown our weight around. We could have emphasized we're somebody and we need to be treated as somebody. And we need to be treated with respect. We need to be given all of these external honors and all of these things. But he's saying we didn't make any of those demands. And they may have had some basis for making those demands, but that's what genuine humility is. It is, it is not emphasizing uh, some 
personal rights or privileges that you may have every right to have. And so they're not emphasizing who they are, but in contrast, he says, we were gentle among you just as nursing mother cherishes her children. Now, what's interesting in this verse is in verse 7, there is a there is a, a textual issue. If you have a King James or New King James, because they're based on a subset of the majority text, they have the word apios. Apios. There's another word in Greek that sounds and spelled almost the same, and that's napios. Napios and apios. The only difference is that you have a, a an N at the beginning of napios, but it's a different word. It's a word for an infant or a baby, and Paul mostly uses it in a negative way, in a pejorative way. Ah, you're just acting like a whiny baby. So it's not, here it would be used in a positive sense, which he could do that, but it's it's not within the character of his usage. And so, but that's the word that you find in three of the oldest manuscripts. And so if you old, think older is better, and that's the critical text, then that's the word that you have. So if you have New American Standard, ESV, uh, NIV, then it has uh, something along the lines of, but we were like a baby among you. But no, it, I don't think it says that. It's gentle. It fits the context better. We're gentle like a nursing mother cherishes her own children. This describes the character of their ministry, that they were gentle. They weren't harsh. They weren't arrogant. They weren't seeking their own. They were gentle with them uh, like a nursing mother is gentle and cherishes her own children. Um Let me skip a couple of these slides. And then we come to verse 8. So affectionately longing for you, and the Greek word there for affectionately longing is the kind of word that was used from somebody who has a loved one who has died and they're missing them and they're lonely for them and they desire to be with them. Uh, to and And so that's the idea, that we miss you very, very much and we long for you, and uh, we were, then he goes on to say, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, it wasn't just about information, but we lived among you, we imparted our lives to you, and we got to know you, and you got to know us, because you had become, and the word is agapetas from agape, you were beloved to us, so they uh, they weren't there long, but they could tell, uh, and they would know that Paul deeply, deeply cared for them. And so that brings us uh, to the end of this particular section, uh, and I'll come back in the next lesson. We'll pick up in verse 9 where we have another further explanation where he says, for you remember, and again, he's going to appeal uh, to their personal experience and their witness of the ministry that Paul and Silas and Timothy had among you, which was all focusing on the gospel. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. 
uh, through this to see how Paul handled opposition, how he handled slander, anger, resentment, gossip, uh, all of the things that were brought against him, just as we too may face in our workplace. We may face it in the uh, in family situations. We may face it with some of our friends and colleagues. And, Father, we just pray that we might be able to keep our focus on you and re- a relaxed mental attitude and be gracious and kind in our in our conduct, demonstrating uh, the reality of our relationship with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.